are live, and I am here with Doc Robert, and I am um, Steve, aka Breck, with Roleplaying Degenerates. Like I said, I'm here with uh, Doc Robert, who I assume plays Dungeons and Dragons. So, Doc, how'd you get started playing D and D? So I kind of had a weird journey to D&D. Despite being a nerd for my whole life, I didn't really start playing D&D until I was an adult. I missed all of the fun college D&D games. I didn't really do any of those. But uh, during my first year of teaching, uh, I was just absolutely bored out of my mind because most of my friends uh, um, were still in school and all that kind of stuff. And I had played one D&D game on a road trip down to Austin, Texas. And I'm like, man, I, that was fun. I want something to do. And so I joined my local Adventures League just to have something to do. And then I got absolutely hooked. My uh, my friends were interested in it, and they kind of got in and started playing too. And here we are five, six, well, seven years later now, and I'm still as hooked on it as I ever was. So as much as I would have absolutely loved to have had those, you know, high school and college games of D&D. I, I never really had that. I kind of got a late start to the hobby. Yeah, can you talk about Adventures League? Because uh, I've heard it a few times that people say that's how they got their start. I'm actually not too familiar with mm -hmm. it. So what is Adventure League? Um, and what are the pros and cons, if you will? So I, I must admit, I had a really, really positive experience with Adventures League. And I've heard people have different mixed responses. Mm -hmm. But basically, the Adventures League is the organized play. So Wizards of the Coast puts out, um, they partner with usually local game stores to run tables of D&D &D with a very formalized common rule set. So the character creation will be the same, the types of adventures they play will be the same, the magic items that get rewarded will be the same, with the idea that you can plug and play these characters at any other adventure league across the country. Now, well, really across the world, not just across country. But that being said, it usually operates a little bit differently than that because, um, like at our, at our game, we weren't taking our characters anywhere that was not just our game store with our DMs. So we had the ability to play a little more loose with the rules, mm -hmm. but only with the understanding that these characters were not going to be transported. It's not like we were taking them, you know, we couldn't have another DM or whatever play with them. So, and obviously if you vary enough, then you're, you're not playing Adventure League anymore, but that organized play can be a really great way to get started because there are no requirements to join. Um, and unless the game store has a sitting fee where they just, you know, want you to pay a little money to make sure that you are, uh, um, a lot of places you don't have to pay anything. So, I mean, I never paid a, a red cent to have to play other than, of course, I bought all of my books and D&D gear through the store I was at and happily patronized them. But it's a really great way to get into the hobby, meet new people. And for me, it's how I learned the rules. I would not have known the rules Without that, uh, that, that's how I learned. Because uh, um, in Adventures League, you play stock, rules is written 100%. Even when rules is written isn't rules is intended, you play rules is written. That way that you're keeping things totally fair across the board. So I really had a great experience. I enjoyed it. I only stopped um, at uh, playing the Adventures League when I moved too far away to make the drive every week. And after that... Uh, um, but until then, I was in the same Adventures League group for about four years. Oh, really? Did you guys finish your campaign at all? Did you finish your campaign at all during the we Adventures finished, League? 
Oh, you did? Okay. We finished multiple. I started off on Storm King's Thunder. We played all the way through Storm King's Thunder. Um, there were some times where we wouldn't finish campaigns, depending on what was going on. Um, there would be influxes of people where we'd have to split up and play multiple tables, or sometimes the groups would get smaller. But I probably finished four or five campaigns minimum. I know I finished Storm King's Thunder, Curse of Strahd. Um, I also finished... Dragon Heist, the starter set at least twice. Mm -hmm. So I I, uh, I ran all of Out of the Abyss, all of Icewind Dale, and all of Avernus. So I played just tons. So, you, so I got through a lot of D&D. Nice. So then it, it almost sounded, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounded as though if somebody misses or gets out of their campaign or takes a year off, they can jump in on Session 7 of the Adventures League and you can still keep playing. Is that how it's designed? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's totally plug and play where if you have to leave, you just come back in wherever you are with the only real restriction being the tier of play. That way you don't have a level one character and a level 11 game. So there were tier one games, which were levels one to uh, one to four, then tier two, which was five to 11, three, which was 11 to 17, and then tier four, which was 17 and up. I don't think I ever played in a tier three or four game it was all tier one or two so if you were playing a character there was pretty much always at least one of each game going on so if you showed up and you had never played before they drop your level one character in with the tier one game and you're good to go there's no like penalty for missing you just kind of roll with it with the story and mm -hmm. that's where a lot of my dm philosophy especially dming for students has come from is you just you can make it work. I mean, you're already suspending your disbelief enough to believe that you're in a magic world. You can do it where someone shows up or doesn't show up. It, it, you can make yeah. it work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, before we talk about uh, playing D&D with students, you've played, it sounds like you've played a lot of modules, a lot of pre-written campaigns. Is that kind of the thing you like to yeah. gear yourself towards? Or do you sometimes go into oh. the homebrew uh, realm? So as a DM, I have pretty much exclusively run pre-written stuff, mostly because during the school year, I don't I don't have time to write out a homebrew campaign. I'm teaching a, teaching three different classes, grading God knows how many essays. I just don't have time to write things out. And as much as I would love to, you know, do homebrew stuff in the summer, I, I can't do homebrew for two months out of the year and then for the rest of the year go through and do a pre-written adventure. So I have, as a DM, I have almost without exception done pre-written stuff a couple exceptions here or there but pretty much only done pre-written adventures um but then i'll just put my own spin on it because it's not hard to you know add your own sidelines characters plot hooks whatever you want to that to do it that way now as a player i've played in a good chunk of homebrew games where my friends have wanted to play in worlds that they've created and i've had a really great time with that god knows i don't have anything against homebrew games it's just for my style of DM, DMing and the time that I have, that works a lot better. Also, as someone with ADHD, having that structure in front of me and being able to work within that structure gives me a better range of freedom, at least for me. Because I can do whatever I want within that. I can change it however I need to. But I have a nice structure to work from to begin with. Yeah, I've heard a few people who, um, they play pre-written rules. Uh, my last podcast with D&D &D Family and she said, yeah, if something gets to where it feels too black and white, I'll just do something homebrew inside of it and go back to, you know, whatever's next. So you don't 
for those of you out there, you don't necessarily I'm, have to go 100% next page. Oh, yeah. And I do that all the time. Like, I mean, there, there, so when I ran through, probably the, the best campaign I've ever run was a campaign of Descent into Avernus over the pandemic. Met uh, some really, I was bored out of my mind during the pandemic. Uh, teaching from home was not terribly difficult when students get like one assignment a week to do. Um, and I was just absolutely bored out of my mind. So I was playing D&D four or five nights a week. Well, one of the groups that I met up, which that is a story in and of itself. Uh, mm -hmm. the two of those players have met, got married, and now have a child because of that game. But but uh, um, but that, yeah, it's pretty cool, honestly. It's really, really fun. Um, but in that game of Avernus, I mean, we played the basic story as it was, but I added so much stuff in, either based on the backstories that the characters had. Um, I just added in an entire, like, hey, what if hell had the Olympics? And we just added that in. And that was like a full two months of our game that we added in because I thought that would be fun. And so we did that for a while. Yep. Um, and you just add stuff in where it works. And it, it works out great. You don't, you know, it, it, for me, it's just like a starting point. It is a, here are some plot points we'll get to eventually, and then I'll change things as I want based on what I feel works. And, you know... The more I run an adventure, the more I'm comfortable changing it around. So I've run the Out of the Abyss adventure probably five or six times at this point to where I just will move, change, omit, add entire swaths of the plot that I just think that doesn't work well. We're doing it this way instead. So especially as you become more and more comfortable with these modules, you, you go off track even more. So yeah, there, there's a lot of that going on, too. Yeah, I spoke with a guy from How to Be a Great GM. I don't know if you're familiar with his his stuff mm -hmm. on YouTube, um, but when for sure he, I am. When when he first the first time I I saw him or heard about his channel was when he was hired by Wizards of the Coast to run Descent into Avernus, and he had that ten minute mm -hmm. intro, the ten minute intro he did, and I was like captivated. I'm like, I want to play Descent into Avernus so bad. Um, but he even said when they called him, Wizards of the Coast called him and said, we want you to run Descent into Avernus. It's this new thing. You know, Joe Maganello's character is going to be in it. And a lot of, like, moving parts. Uh, yeah, Archon's going to be in it. It's going to be really fun. And the first thing he said was, the first thing he said was, I'll do a lot of this, but I'm homebrewing most of it, too, because that's just the DM I am. So I think Wizards of the Coast, they set you these modules for you to play with them. I mean, the rule book's full of a, whole, a bunch yeah. of homebrew stuff. So for people out there who think, like, I know I've always thought like those negative connotations with some of these um, modules, but I've seen DMs play them mm -hmm. so well that it, it it's it's almost sometimes maybe for you and for other people it might even be better off for them just to do homebrew off of that module. Yeah, no, I completely agree. That's how I feel too. As I say, for me, and maybe this is just you know also as an English major, as an English student. Once I have a structure to go off of, I could do whatever I want. It's almost more freeing than having a blank slate. Because when you have a blank slate, that's when you get like option paralysis. Yep. There's also for me, or for me, if I'm trying to build my own world, I will get like hung up into the minutia. Like, how does the economy of this city work? When that's probably not going to be important to most of what is going on. And yeah. so being able to run in a setting that I I know, I know the Forgotten Realms very well. I more or less know how things work in the Forgotten Realms with, you know, character settings, locations, world rules that are commonly understood by basically anybody who's going to pick up and play. Um, and then I can just make changes as I need. And that works out really well. I've had 
some of the best experiences with that. Now, I have done some homebrew stuff. Um, once again, because I'm an English teacher, I wrote an adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Tempest as a D&D campaign, because that's just a, it, it's a D&D it's a campaign. They, they wash up on the shore of an island. There's a big, bad, evil guy trying to mess with them. It's a D&D campaign just written 500 years ago. But once again, I already had a structure. I already had all of that stuff there that I was playing off of. So I would probably not do well trying to come up with something from a completely blank slate. I just wouldn't do as well for me. Yeah, speaking to you being an English teacher, um, your note-taking mm -hmm. and your writing for different uh, sessions, do you, ha you feel like you've, you've narrowed down some easy ways to write notes? I personally use what I call the spiderweb method, and it's just you have this uh -huh. idea, and then I put a line. If they go here, it's this idea. If they go here, it's that idea. Um, so I do like that, but I'm kind of curious to see, since you are an academic, if there's some better way you found to, to prep. Well, let me tell you something. I don't think I've ever taken notes at any point in my life. Really? <laughs> Except in classes where it was an explicit requirement for a grade. Yeah. I don't think I've ever taken notes. And that's true with my D&D as well. Should I? Yeah, probably. But I don't. I absolutely don't. Um... One of the things that I am pretty good at is I generally have a pretty good memory for plot beats and that kind of stuff. I was an English literature major in college, so there's not much other choice. When you're reading one book per class per week, you got to remember what happened, notes or not. So I'm usually pretty good with that kind of stuff. And then that with a, I've become very good at improvisation, which I think also comes around to being a teacher. You being a teacher is improv improvisation as a as a job basically so between those two things is more or less how i get my gming done i have general ideas on how things might work out but i try not to plan too far in advance for any of that kind of stuff as a, as a gm like i don't web graph out what they might do i don't have like flow charts I try to take it moment by moment, and then as that moment occurs, what would be the natural occurring consequences to this within this larger framework that I've set up? So, yeah, I'm, uh, I would be the literal worst person to ask about how to take notes because I have no clue. I, I, I don't do it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's funny you mention that because I've said on maybe every one of my podcasts that I am an avid note taker, um, and that's just my strategy. I probably take more notes than anybody I've ever I've ever done a podcast with because I've shown people my notes and like there's mm -hmm. no way you do that I'm like I, before everything I do it because in my head it's like I'm an aircraft mechanic by trade in my head it's like if this is wrong mm -hmm. with the aircraft I go to step two and then step three so for me it's something that I need to do but I will say and I've said this on every podcast that the best moments in my game and I mean like the top 10 all 10 of them have been 100% unscripted 100% um, seat in my pants and basically improvisation as it's happening. So even though I do take notes, I fully recognize that the best moments in this game, everybody, including the DM, is experiencing for the first time. Yeah, no, that's how I feel too. And, you know, that totally makes sense. I um, And I've really seen that. I found it interesting just with the number of different people I've played with. I've played with people of every age, every persuasion, every, you know, different 
type of job, literally anything. But but it is it is sort of that way. I've you know I have one student who she takes lots and lots of notes, and it's really awesome because if we want to know what happened to the campaign, she can flip back, and she's more or less had the whole plot written out for us, which is really nice. I am yeah. never gonna hate on those people. Yeah. And then there's me who just kind of makes it up as I go along. So yeah. there's probably a nice happy medium in there somewhere, um, and I think that happy medium doesn't come from everybody compromising, but everybody doing what works for them. So if a note taker wants to take their notes, then that's great. Everyone's going to have benefited from that being a thing. Whereas, you know, the people who can improvise can improvise. I mean, it's a game that's all about collaboration anyway. So if you can just extend that out into the way that people like to run their characters and just run their, their lives, you actually, in my opinion, get much better results. So I, I, but I definitely agree that I think some of those improvised moments are the best because that's when you really, you know, you get people acting, I don't know, I don't want to say their true selves, but you know, that's when they're going off script. That's when they're making real choices and you get to learn about people. And that's what I really like. Yeah, and I, I do want to get to those those real moments in the game. But first, let's talk about um, your teacher. And from what it sounds like, mm -hmm. you play with students, D&D uh, &D with students. You've got them engaged into it. What is that like? How did it start? It? How did it uh, come to be? And what have you learned from uh, DMing students compared to maybe an adult? Gotcha. So, you know, as I mentioned, I started DM. The first time I ever DM'd was with my friends. And, uh, you know, we're, above, uh, we're talking about role-playing degenerates. We would fit in well with the title. We, that, that is us. We are all role-playing degenerates. So, to a certain extent, playing with students was easier because I didn't have to deal with, you know, I, if I can deal with my friend's degeneracy, I can deal with anything the students throw at me. But the reason I started at the beginning is that I just knew um, the first school that I taught at long-term it was a middle school in the middle of nowhere, and I really love that school. It's a wonderful, great little school, really, really great kids, and it was small enough that I had every single sixth grade student in the building and half of the seventh grade again. So half of those students I had for two years, and let me tell you, when you have a student for two years, you know those kids, and you know them well. So, and what I started realizing is that there was this just, there was this hole in the extracurriculars, Especially after one of my friends, uh, one of the other teachers, had left to go to do something else. Uh, one of his extracurriculars that he ran kind of went by the wayside. And there wasn't really an extracurricular for some of these kids who didn't do as much. You know, there was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. There was the, you know, the FFA. There was all kinds of stuff. But there wasn't uh, stuff for some of these kids with, you know, who may have had a hard time, a harder time socially. So I started up the Games Club. And... At the middle school, it was just a general games club where they could play D&D, but we also had board games. We had cards. They could just show up, and we had kids who wanted to play Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon, and that was great. I didn't care. Whatever. Whatever works for them. So I ran a table for the new players, and then I had another student, especially after the first year, who he was a really good student who I trusted, and he ran a table too. He ran a table full of his, of, of his friends, and they ran their own game. And we did that for... Did I, what was it, two, three years? I think it was, it was either two or three years. I don't exactly remember how long, but it, it was a while. Mm -hmm. And it worked out great. Had some really great responses. At a, at a school of 400-some-odd kids, I would have 20, 30 kids show up every week for three hours after school. And it was fantastic. Great experiences, great kids. A lot of kids who may, otherwise may not have, you know, 
been involved in a club or after school activities gave them a place where they could come and make some friends and hang out. And, th- and that was really the best part of it. And then I never complained because it meant I got to play more D and D. The other thing, when I had people ask me like, man, you're hanging out for three hours after school, watching these kids. That's crazy. And, and what I would always say is I'm like, well, I want you to think about this. The students who elect to hang out with a teacher for three hours after school and play Dungeons and Dragons are not the students that I am worried about. They are not the students who were stressing me out anyway. They were the students who I enjoyed being around anyway. And that was true without exception, as far as I am aware. Those, you know, there were kids who I wanted, you know, the, the enjoyable kids, good kids who, you know, talked, thought, did things, and I enjoyed being around. Um, and so they came to the club, they learned D&D, they played some stuff, they met some, made some friends or had some social interaction that wouldn't have other had, and that worked out great. And uh, so, and then, um, after my grandpa passed away, I, I inherited his house, which necessitated a move, but I moved from a middle school environment to a high school environment. Well, apparently news travels very quickly, and it was very quickly found out that I was the D&D nerd teacher. These, these things don't stay secret for very long. And it didn't even take a month for students coming up to me and be like, hey, we're going to do a club? I, I see that, the, see the, you know, we, we can have a club. And I'm like, you know what? Sure. And it took off once again. We have at least three tables. Another teacher volunteered to help out. 20, 30 kids-ish, you know, give and take a week. And it worked out pretty great, especially for our first year all the way throughout. So same kind of deal, but with, uh, with, with high school students this time instead of middle school and just as good of a time. So, and I really think it's a great niche that allows some kids who would not be in a club or after school activity to have a place to come and meet friends where they can be themselves and uh, and have some great social interaction in a very fun and natural way. So, and to me, that's really important. Uh, yeah, it's it's super important. When I grew up, I was the captain of the wrestling team, captain of the football team. I didn't know about D and D till I was twenty seven, twenty six or twenty seven. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I've heard the the term Dungeons and Dragons, but I associated it with World of Warcraft. I thought it was an online game. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're seeing like a, a resurgence, like we talked about Joe Maganello and, and Jocks Machina earlier, but you're seeing this resurgence in like, this isn't just a nerdy kid. There's more people, just normal, normal people who like run, work out, or playing this game because what makes this game so special, and I want to talk about this, but I want to get back to what your kids are doing, um, is like mm-hmm. the moments that you raise in this game aren't necessarily about like, yeah, it's about defeating a dragon and doing these things, but it's about creating like a, a, these hilarious, great sad um gripping moments and anybody if you have a pulse you can get attached to those moments where you know you got two death saves or two you failed two death saves you got one more left you know we don't know if you guys are gonna make it mm-hmm. out live but it's one of those situations um but going back to your kids uh, i'll let you i'll let you chime in on that in a second but go back to your to the kids you have play um it's funny that we're seeing more and more teachers and and i have a friend who's a uh um, like a psychologist kind of, and she goes to schools and they um, have these kids play the game and it was so successful psychologically as far as getting uh, these children to play in Canada that the university close by actually funded $60,000 for more research than this next coming fall, which I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're not surprised. But what is it about getting kids to play? And, and do you get those moments that you do with these, those adults where, you know, everyone's looking around at the table 
um, not sure if this, you're going to make it out of here alive or just laughing because you're rolling one after one after one just trying to open a door. Yeah, no, I 100% not, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. In fact, that is one of my passions. Um, one of the things that would almost universally happen is a lot of the stu non-neurotypical students would end up flocking to this club because, of course, they did. I mean, I'm not neurotypical, so I can't exactly judge. But, but yeah, so especially with students with social and emotional handicaps, D&D is so good for those students. I have seen students with severe social-emotional, you know, disabilities, or even just slight apprehensions, really everywhere on the different spectrums. It gives them a chance to test out social situations in a low-risk environment, because if something happens, well, that wasn't your fault. You didn't do it. The character did. And then you move on. Oh, look, wasn't that a funny thing that happened? But, but you didn't do it. Your character did. So that, that's really something I feel enormous passion for, you know, especially in a middle school environment where, let's be honest, um, it doesn't matter. Middle school students, whether they are neurotypical or not, are all awkward and have no idea what's going on. So it was really good for all of them, <laughs> for, for all of them to be able to test out and, and, you know, test the waters with these sorts of social situations. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between DMing at a high school and DMing at a middle school, where I think for some of them, DM, or playing D&D &D, D &D at a middle school was as much therapy as it was playing a game. And I mean that in the best sort of sense. They were out here with their friends getting to test out different things. They get to, you know, be more confident than they are. They get to be sneaky when they might be the, you know, straight-laced kid. They can be something they are not in a completely risk-free environment. Because what's the worst that happens? Your character dies, you roll up a new one, and we move on. And would that be sad? Yes. But it would also be really funny and a great story, whereas that is just part of the experience. And I think that that, at least for the middle schoolers, was the best part. Now, for the high schoolers, they have a little more idea of what's going on. They, they've figured things out a little more. And for them, it seems to be more of a collaborative, social experience where you're, you know, relationship building with people who you already know. Those groups get along really well and end up being pretty close by the end of it, which is great. That's what I really want it to do. So it ends up being different with both levels, but really good in different ways. And it's really cool to see this game playing with the same rules, the same structures, often the literal same adventure, end up doing something so different. And I really, really enjoyed that. What is it about? What is it about D and D? How how do you how would you describe D and D to a person who's trying to get into it? Because it's a very hard question. I you could say the general things. Everything's done with a roll of dice and and you know you're kind of role playing. But to capture the feeling of rolling a crit, you know, on a big bad or failing a death saving throw and everyone's looking at each other. How do you how can you express this this game or this experience into words to someone who's maybe thinking about it? Yeah, so I usually just explain to people that it's collaborative storytelling. That's all it is. It is a group of people who are agreeing on a, they've agreed on a rule set, and they just want to see what happens within the story. The dungeon master sets a scene. They, as a character, often the first time their character is literally just them, but with a sword, and they act and react how they would and see how things pan out. So it's just a collaborative storytelling experience. I explain it just like the, you know, 
just like back in the day, you may have read those choose your own adventure books where you were the main character and you had to make decisions and see how things plot out. It's like that, but with more options. And they've, you know, people have come around to it pretty quickly. I, I haven't, you know, um, it's still in my experience, the best way to teach someone how to play D&D is to just give them a character sheet and tell them to go for it. They'll figure out the rules as they go, um, as opposed to trying to explain God knows how many rules to them. But once I think you explain that it's just a collaborative storytelling experience, then uh, they pretty much get it, and, they, and it, it works out pretty well. I, I've had good experience with that being a thing. A lot of people are more open-minded um, especially now that, you know, I'm, we really can't overstate how much Stranger Things has done for the D&D community, where, you know, I I was a, playing D&D when it came out, but I was very new at it, you know, and it really brought it back into the mainstream, and it's really cool for me in the newest season that there is a D&D club at the school, and it focuses around that, and I'm thinking... I need to, you know, abuse the hell out of that when we go back into the new school year and yeah. see however I can market that as much as possible. Yeah. But, uh, um, and now that people have a little more understanding of what it is, I've seen so many different people play it. You, you were talking about the just broad range of people playing it. it that was one of, especially at the middle school. Um, as I mentioned, it was a very small school, 400 some odd students in the entire building. And we would literally have everyone from the student council president to someone who barely interacted with other students at the same t table. And it was awesome. It was so much fun to be able and to do that. Uh, one of my other favorite moments is we had a whole all-girl table with a, one of, a student girl DM DMing a table full of girl players. And I'm just like, yes, this is a win. I feel like I have succeeded in this moment. We have actually done something here. And it was just, it's just cool to see that these just huge, broad range of people doing that. Because at, in these days, nerd culture is pop culture. You know, I, I feel like I grew up at the right time. 2008, Iron Man. 2009, Dark Knight. After that, nerd culture has just been pop culture and expanded out ever since then to where D&D &D may have been a joke in the 80s. And it is something that very normal people do today. And that just makes me unironically very happy. <laughs> yeah, there's a few stories I want to tell you because they're kind of pertain to what's going on right now. It's very funny. The first one is I have somebody at work. Like I said, I'm an aircraft mechanic on corporate jets. And I started running a D&D &D game mm -hmm. with everybody on my crew, about eight people. Um, and we're almost a year in now. It's been really fun. But word gets around, obviously. And there's people who are just like, D&D, &D, you know, there's a lot of older guys for 30, 40. And they're like, I heard about that back in the day. Like, that's really weird you guys play that. But today I was sitting, uh, eating eating lunch today, and I'm unequivocally like the most flamboyant D&D player ever. Like if someone's like, you play d and I'm like, I play d and I would play it every day, and it's the greatest game ever played. I'll tell anybody that, regardless of what they tell me. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's true. I mean, you you know you know how it is. Um, and he, oh, came yeah. up to, he came up to me today, and he said, so I was watching the new, you see, I was watching Stranger Things last night, and I was like, did you watch season four, episode one, and now you're asking me about D&D? And he said, that's exactly what I'm about to do. And he's like, is that really how it is? And I'm like, that's literally how it is. Like, when you're fighting the, the last big boss or something's going on and everyone's looking at each other, like, what's going to happen here? That's, that's the way D&D &D is. It gets you right in those feels. Um, uh, we also brought up these, these not so, not so uh, demographic players, if you will. Uh, you know, it, you see, like, 
guys who live in their basement playing D&D is like the negative connotation of it. But this last weekend, my wife was uh, hanging out with somebody she goes to church with, and they were at her house just drinking tea or whatever. And this uh, this woman's a teacher just like you, and her husband is a doctor. And he comes running down the stairs, and he has the player's handbook in his hand, and he's like, babe, I'm going to play uh, Elf Rogue. And her wife... Uh, was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But my wife, who knows about D&D, because she's watched all of Critical Role, um, she goes, are uh-huh. you playing Dungeons & Dragons? And he's like, yeah, I've kind of wanted to play the last few months um, for whatever reason. I haven't found out yet. And we were looking for a DM, and I think we found one. And my wife's like, my husband is really into D&D, and he's been DMing for a, a little while now. Do you want to play? So this Saturday is our zero session, and they were asking me, how do you explain mm-hmm. D&D? And I said, I can't explain it to you. I can tell you the mechanics of it, but I can tell you to go watch season four, episode one of, of Stranger Things, and I can probably tell you to go watch Critical Role. And those two things are like the closest I think you can get to seeing what it is. Yeah. No, I completely agree. For, for sure, for sure. And, you know, and I've had a similar situations too, and it's been so cool to see the demographic so broad. Um, one of my favorite moments in Adventure League, because Adventure League, other than playing with students, Adventure League is where I've gotten the broadest ranges of people. I played, at Adventure League, I played for a table of mostly retired people. Definitely, everyone over the age of 50, most of them over the age of 60 really? players there. And I had run the same adventure with my middle school students. So that was fun to see the difference there. But one of my favorite moments of all time, and it was great. I'm still friends with these, with these wonderful gentlemen. We were playing one day. We had a table coming in, and we have these two guys in, the, in black pants, white shirts, black ties walk in. A couple of Mormon missionaries walk in, and they're like, oh, hey, we're here to play D&D. And he's like, yeah, I used to play at home all the time, and we have, win- we have Wednesdays off, so we want to play. And I'm like, I'm on in. And they were the best players, wonderful, amazing people. And it's just like, you really can't shoehorn people, especially not these days, not the way that you used to be. We're way too connected culturally through the internet to be able to shoehorn and make assumptions about people. And that, and that's another one of the things that D and D has really taught me is, you know, you can learn a lot about people with, uh, through D and D just through that stuff. And sometimes you're not surprised and sometimes you are. And that's, I think that the, there is a, an honesty in the game. There isn't, there's a, a certain level of honesty you have to have both with yourself and with the other players in order to make the game work. You have to be a certain amount of vulnerable or at least be able to fake it well enough that people can't tell the difference. And I think that's really what makes the game work. That's what makes those moments special is that you have had an honest investment into the story and into the characters that despite the fact it's a fictional world, it's one you care about instead of one that you, you know, read about in a book or that you saw in the movies. It's one that you created, so you feel all the more invested in it because it's special to you. And even more importantly, you're sharing it with a small group of people who are just as invested in it as they are. And, you know... That's where I think I've had all of the best D&D experiences, whether it be at Adventures League or at Table with Students. Is, you know, when you really get that buy-in from them is when you take it for, and it really moves to the next level and, and people get very excited. So switching gears here, what's your favorite PC and or NPC that you've played and why? 
So, um, once again, because I'm an annoying English teacher, I have a habit of uh, basing my characters off of um, off of Shakespeare characters just because I think it's fun. He wrote enough interesting characters that you can usually do that. My favorite character that I ever made was a barbarian, um, a zealot barbarian dragonborn by the name of Caliban, based off of the character Caliban from The Tempest. Um, I interwove his backstory to fit in for, uh, to fit in the Forgotten Realms. Caliban in Shakespeare's mom was a witch, so Caliban's mom was a night hag. He was a gimped red dragon, though he didn't know that, who was used to portent the events of Rise of Tiamat, and therefore he became a dragon born on accident and was raised to worship Tiamat. But he was too dumb to know that Tiamat was actually evil. He just thought that that was totally normal. Um, what was really amazing is that when I went, I learned that um, our group was going to play Play Descent into Avernus. I knew that Tiamat was in Avernus. I knew that as a plot point. And so I'm like, okay, well, that would be cool. I'll just have a character that worships, worships Tiamat in Avernus, and this seems like a pretty good way to do that. Well, that fit way, way better than I could have ever imagined, especially where, you know, I've watched Critical Role. I knew who Archon was, of course. I, I wasn't necessarily what I was most obsessed with or most interested in, but... Archon and Caliban became like a team, where Caliban was like his loyal servant. What can I do for Archon? Is Archon around yet? And he was just like his little puppy dog who would do literally anything because he was too dumb to know the difference and knew that this guy was really cool and worshipped the same god that he did. So that was... I just loved that character dearly. He was, you know... He was evil, but only evil because he was too dumb to know the difference, and it made him for a really fun character. And then, plus tying in with uh, Descent into Avernus as well as it is, which it's probably my favorite adventure, honestly. I've I just had so much fun with that, both as a player and a DM, since I, I've been on both sides of it. And so, he's my favorite character. I try to plug him in um, as an NPC as many different ways as possible, because why wouldn't I do that? It's great. So, um, And then I've, of course, become... Uh, um, uh, just as obsessed with Archon, where I've, of course, gone to Death Saves, bought all the Archon merch that I can, you know, all of mm. that. So he's my favorite. Uh, second prize goes to another Shakespeare-based character named Iago, who is a half-drow um, whispers bard who, like Iago from Othello, was just a jerk who liked to mess with everybody. But uh, he wasn't so much evil as he was just conniving, trying to get his way. And did ended up killing him because he got a magic item that swapped his heart with a stone heart, and uh, that's how it goes. So, winning end for him, I thought. So, I don't know. Maybe I can't write interesting characters, so I just let Shakespeare do it for me. Hey, that's a that's a winning formula, if you ask me. Um, I want to talk about Critical Role, but before I do, I saw Dark Prince Travis. He messaged on here and said he never played D and D, but he's wanted to play this character. If you're still on, go to. Uh, Role-playing Degenerates on Discord. We play free games. For anyone who is playing, it's a really good way to just get in and not be judged about it. So if you haven't played, get on there. We have free games. Talking to, talking about Critical Role, because I'm a huge fan. Uh, it sounds like you're somewhat of a fan, um, since you know so much about Archon. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about, and spoilers for those of you who don't know this, but let's talk about Archon in the amazing thing he did at the very end of season one, if you're familiar with it. So mm -hmm. so when, when when I tell people, like when people ask me what's D&D about, I started playing uh, during COVID, actually when COVID very first started, and we were in, the, we were in the military at the time, 
and uh, they told us stay in the barracks. You can't go to work for three months. Well, everyone in the Army, because I came from the Marine Corps to the Army, I didn't know about it in the Marine Corps, but everyone in the Army played D&D. &D. So they were all at these mm -hmm. the barracks, and I had a house on base with my wife, and they said, well, we can't go to work, so come play D&D. &D. Um, and it was amazing because it was like three months of playing, 20, you know, 12 hours at a time. It was really good. Um, so during that time, they told me, hey, if you like this, because I, I remember after the first time I played the first session, I just thought in my head, I'm going to play this the rest of my life. There's no doubt about it. Like, that's how much I really loved it from the beginning. Um, but they told me, go watch Critical Role. And the first, like, I just couldn't get into the very first season very much, like, right away. So my friend's like, well, yeah. you're, still, you're still new and everything's a little different. Um, and you don't really understand the rules. But just go watch the highlight of the end of campaign one. And I wish I wouldn't have now yeah. because I ruined it for myself. But I will say, I watched uh -huh. that, that six-minute highlight video on YouTube, and I didn't know what I was watching. I didn't understand that, you know, Scanlan was was saving that, that spell. I didn't understand what Archon was doing, but I just knew. Big video. Yeah, but I just knew what the, this, the energy they had, their, their expressions. I knew that this was a big deal. I knew this was the end of a five-year campaign of something I just started <laughs> similarly. So can you talk about Critical Role? Can you talk about what Archon did? And can you talk about, like... There's no other game like this that I can think of that's that's like a culmination of all these moments. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm a pretty big Critical Role fan. Now, I will be the very first to admit I'm very behind. I haven't finished. I've watched almost all of season one. I definitely know how it ends and all that kind of stuff. And seen a good chunk of season two, none of season three. I'm too far behind. I also went out of my way uh, a couple of years ago when they were at C2E2 to go meet the cast, which was amazing. Matt Mercer is truly one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, my, for those of you who have seen me on Discord, my Discord picture is Matt Mercer and I. Um, so, but, um, but no, I really love it just because I, it shows the flexibility that you can have playing these games. Now, not only is it the shared storytelling, and as you mentioned, the weight of, oh, this evil person is doing a very bad thing that is directly negative to us, and we weren't expecting this. What's most important is it shows that an evil character could totally work. Their goals aligned up until that very last second. Like, everything, they were 100% on the same page. They were together. There was no problems. They may have had some disagreements, but it was all tangential. Because their goal was the same. And I, honestly, I like playing evil characters for that reason. Um, and I don't know, maybe this makes me a bad person. I'm willing to admit that's a possibility. <laughs> but I, I just think it's fun because that allows those subversions of expectations to really, really twist the knife. Um, that was one of the things with Caliban. So Caliban was evil. He was more lawful stupid than evil than anything mm -hmm. else. Um but it would be problematic at times where we're like, okay, this is the thing that Tiamat would want you to do, and this is what's good for our group. What are you going to do right now? And then I, as a player, had to step out of myself because I realized that Caliban could not possibly be more different than me. This is definitely a time where I am playing a character who is not me. He's just very different than me. He doesn't make decisions the way I do. He doesn't think the way I do. His priorities are different. So I literally have to sit here and think through what would this dude do in this situation and do my best to represent that, but also, of course, do it while being a good player because I'm just doing what the character would do is not an excuse for being a crappy player. You know, it's also... 
So it's creating that intrigue while still making it interesting for everybody. And I think Joe Manganiello um, showed it perfectly where, yeah, trust me, he wasn't doing what everybody wanted him to do. But it was in a way that not only did it not spoil everyone's fun, it heightened it. That conflict, that difference only made it better and more interesting. And I do think that's one of the challenges of playing an evil character because if you're just playing chaotic evil, I stabbed my friend because I felt like I wanted to, that's not going to be fun. But if you can weave it into a certain way, that it can really make these narratives really fun. And I think that having those sorts of conflicts of goals of characters is really where another one of those areas where you go to the next level. So the to me, like there, there's a couple different levels of, of D&D playing. The first level which, as I've mentioned, there's nothing wrong with this, is you are playing yourself. You put a sword in your hand, and you walk into the dungeon. What would you do? And not only is there nothing wrong with that, that's how basically everybody starts. You start as yourself. How would I react in this fantasy situation? Now, once you get comfortable doing that, you play a character, a different character. Maybe that character is more confident than you. Maybe less confident. Maybe whatever, you know? Whatever difference there is between this fictional character and you, you're able to separate yourself and play with that distinction of separation. And usually, though, and this is when we get to the third level, is not only is there a distinction of separation, but different people in the group have different levels of separation and their goals aren't necessarily the same. Uh, that, I, that, that also is one of the biggest differences between the middle school and the high school groups, where the middle school groups, they're at level one, maybe level two where, I mean, you got to keep them on track. Middle school students don't necessarily know where those lines are. But the high school, you can start getting complex. But, uh, but once you have those different motivations and different goals within a similar, you know, the similar story structure is when you really start to have some, some interest and intrigue going on at a table. So, I don't know. I think that that's something I like as a DM. I try to build that in. It definitely doesn't always work, but it's a fun thing to try to build in, especially if you can get in with character building, um, that it can make stuff really cool. Have some have some conflict built in. Yeah, yeah. I think complications in the game make even what I call... I have like a, I have like a list of complication tier levels, and it's you have your... Um, Basic complications, meaning you need to get more arrows or, you know, levels of exhaustion, uh, you know, or a fork in the road. You have your intermediate complications where it's someone's backstory wants to go here, someone's backstory wants to go here. Or then you have, like, your major complications, like a character death or the world is ending or things like that. But each level of complications actually enhances the game. Um, I have started to track people's arrows and, and their ammunition because when they run out, there's a complication here. We have to go to a city to, to get munitions, and a lot of times heroes will just go into a city. Uh, we don't need anything except for maybe a magic item, but we don't have any gold right now, so let's get out of here. But this kind of gives them a micro-complication. will give them, like, okay, I need arrows. Let's go get arrows. And there they meet this weird kobold creature that is acting really strange behind the counter. So now it's this weird complication. Like, oh, now what's going on? So um, for those of you out there who... Want to get better at DMing? I think uh, Doc Robert has it right. These complications you add actually enhance the game. Yeah. So the way I would think of it, and, and this goes also to my background at, as an educator and uh, um, with a lot of you know classes and education. If if you think of the hierarchy of needs, 
You know, you have someone's base need for food, shelter, the basics, all the way up to self-actualization. Every one of those parts of the hierarchy is a place for conflict within the story. Now, ideally, your story should be, you know, should be a base level. We need to make sure the world is livable or this mass tragedy doesn't occur or whatever scale that you're putting things at. But at the end, it should also be a fight for your character's self-actualization. Who are they as a person? Um, in my personal opinion, if you're doing D&D right, they're going to have those questions about themselves at some point. They're going to have to deal with that. So um, if you are really looking for inspiration at what to throw at your players, pull up Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Look at the different things that a person needs and at what scale and think, how can I take that away from them? <laughs> or how can I complicate that? How can I make that different and interesting for them? So just as a, you know, from, from a social standpoint, I, I find that to be a really interesting thing. And, you know, I guess part of that also goes along with, as a teacher, I see students dealing with everything from the small and trivial to the things that no child should have to deal with, but they have to anyway. And all of those struggles are important. It doesn't trivialize one for that the other one is dealing with a different one. And this can be a good outlet for that. Having a fictional character dealing with a fictional problem can make you feel about your better about your real world issues. So um, that's one of the other ways I try to put conflict. And I, I wouldn't say I necessarily pull up Maslow's hierarchy of needs every time, but it's still the same way I think about that. Like, how are we going to introduce these sorts of conflicts and make things interesting and different for these people, for these characters, and for the players? Yeah, I th as it, when I first started out DMing, I, I found out that I was railroading really a lot the first few sessions because I didn't really understand what it meant to throw things like I'll throw a monster at them. Well monsters are awesome and they're cool, but it's only it's like one dimension to what D D is about. And and you throw them on a on a scent or a trail or you tell them something is strange about something and it, it holds the same if not more of an effect on the group. They're like, wait, what what do you mean it's strange? Like, oh just like there's smoke billowing from this person's dress. There's smoke billowing, and it's like one of those weird things. Gets the juices flowing. They don't know what's going on. Um, but I do want to. I do want to close with this. This. This question. And I always ask this question because I always like to hear it. Um, where do you see yourself with Dungeons and Dragons in five, ten, and fifteen years? I mean, honestly, I am a teacher. I plan on continuing being a teacher. I uh, can't imagine myself doing any other job. So I see myself continuing a lot of this um at this point i play more with um i played more with my students than i did with my friends which isn't necessarily what i always want but i also really like that too it's it's fun to do that so i think that a lot of my experience going forward is going to be still dming for these groups dming for my students um and I don't really have anything negative to say about that i've, I've loved doing it it's been uh, a really great experience for me i i can't think of any negatives that have come from it other than my dog gets angry at me when i come home late some once a week um but i would just like to be i'd like like it to be a mainstay i'd love to see it grow at our school maybe across that i, I work at a pretty big school now 2500 students esque. so i'd love to see it grow to we have three tables i'd love to see five i'd love to see how big can we get this like like what what can we do because in my experience once you get people playing D, D, 
for the most part, they get hooked pretty quickly. You can get return players pretty quickly. So to ha- have a first year, and we didn't even start at the very beginning of the year, to start off with three tables is great. I'd love to start that. And then the number one thing for me is to see not just character growth, but personal growth from my students. Almost nothing gives me more joy than seeing someone come out of their shell. Um, this happened, especially at the middle school, and it's happening at the high school too. One, one kiddo at the middle school was very quiet in class. You know, he had friends. He talked talk he wasn't you know mute or anything wasn't the most social and he ended up with his own table and he was a very dynamic excellent dungeon master who dm'd for a table of his peers and they respected him because he knew what he was doing and that is as a teacher there's nothing better than that (laughs) to see someone go from you know you know maybe not the uh, most experienced in some social situations to I can be a DM for a group of my peers and have complete confidence because I know what I'm doing. And that's the best. So I'd love to do that. Um, I've, other things that I would love to have happen, um, I've always, as I mentioned, felt really strongly about having D&D as a, uh, a literal therapeutic tool for some people. I've worked with a lot of autistic students, autistic people, um, and had that as a way to help. I would, you know... And I guess Dream World, I, I think it'd be great to work with a charity or something that does that to help people. But more or less, I just kind of want to do the things I'm doing with D&D already and multiply it. Um, I just started over on the Ages of Einor uh, Discord channel. I'm running a game over there, so there's my plug. If you want to play a game where I'm DMing, uh, you could, can head over there. I don't get to DM enough, so I'm always looking to, to play more games. Um but more or less, that, that's just kind of what I, I want to do. I just want to run more games for my students, see the club grow, see the, the hobby grow, and, uh, and get to play some fun D&D while I'm at it. Yeah, uh, I think Bonus Mom was on here recently, and she, she was talking about Ages of Ainur. I am going to play a game on there, so if you're DMing, I might jump in. Um, I would love to. I've heard a lot Please of do. great things. Oh. Yeah, I've heard a lot of great things about Ages of Ainur. Um, so, uh, other than ages, it's a good community. Okay, yeah. I, well, I, yeah, like I said, I would love. I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll say. I'll, I'm gonna make my promise to myself. This month, I will get on there and I will play a game, no matter how busy I am, because um, I really want to play with you guys. Fantastic. Um, so looking looking into the future, where can people find out more about uh, Doc Robert, and where can they find you, or where can they connect with you? So I'm 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 not really out there social media wise. I don't have much, you know, many public channels. If you have a question for me, um, I'm in the um, the role playing degenerates Discord. I'm in the Ages Vinor Discord. Some other stuff there. Just you know, draw tag me, drop me a DM. But uh, yeah, I don't really have any public social media. Most teachers I know don't. So um, that that's going to be the the best way to connect with me. I mean, obviously, I'm always happy to to chat with people. I, especially during the summer when I'm not teaching, I love helping people build their characters, find, you know, what's going on with that, uh, working. I've even helped some DMs try to pound out some stuff about their campaigns that are fun. I know way too much about the games and the lore, so I've been able to work with that. So yeah. um, that's probably going to be the, the, the best way. I don't have a whole lot of other public-facing stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, for those of you who want to play, they can go to Ages of Ionor, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. sounds like my kids just showed up because they're being really loud. So I apologize for that. But, um, um, 
thank you for everyone for coming on here. Uh, thank you, Robert, for coming on here. It was, it was a pleasure. We're going to have to do it again sometime. Uh, I'm Brexty with Roleplaying Degenerates. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Yeah.